the way that right-wing media probably could exist in this alternate universe does perversely exist on their ability to live on these main platforms and then say, hey, come over to this platform over here where you can't be canceled. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, February 3rd. Today, Tina Wynn joins me to talk about a civil war breaking out in right-wing media between Ben Shapiro's The Daily Wire and the lib-owning provocateur who turned down millions of dollars to work for them. Why he did so says a lot about the changing nature of media, Republican attacks on big tech, and who gets to claim street cred in the MAGA swamps of the internet. And later, Dylan Byers drops by to discuss Chris Lick's private recruiting effort to bring Gail King over to CNN. Could she move the needle for the network's ratings? And would she even want the job? We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I have been talking to Dylan Byers the last couple of Fridays about media, but I feel like one reason I wanted Tina Wynn to come on today is because when we talk about media, like we, me and you, Puck listeners, Powers That Be listeners, we talk about the Washington Post and CNN and the Wall Street Journal. And like, this always been one of my little hobby horses here. The media means so much and so much beyond the field of view of elites who, you know, read Puck, live on the Acela Corridor. Media, for a lot of conservatives, means the Daily Wire. It means Sean Hannity. It means Dan Bongino. It means Steve Bannon. And some of these platforms and channels reach way more people than anything on CNN or in the New York Times. And that's why today Tina Wynn is joining us to talk about a war going on in conservative media. How are you, Tina? I am great. Do you agree with my sentiments? I do. I do. This has been... <laughs> This has been the bane of my life every time I walk up to someone and they hear about my beat and they're like, oh, ha ha, is it really fringy? And I'm like, no, no, there are millions of people involved. There's possibly billions of dollars involved here. It changes the course of American public opinion. Mm -hmm. Don't you dare consider this unimportant <laughs> and weird and fringy, sir. No, ah, I mean, okay. I've, I've felt this since since I left CNN to go work at Snapchat. It's like, oh, you know, I, Snapchat reach, and, you know, my show reaches millions of people every day. And like, they're just not talked about in the same breath as, and, and which is fair. I mean, it's a different kind of media. It's a upstart media, but it matters and it can influence public opinion. So the story you wrote that I think is so interesting, you called it a, a millennial right wing media war. It's up on Puck. Um, you wrote it last week. Basically... Steven Crowder, who is a young conservative content creator, YouTuber, his shtick, you know, at least when I first became aware of him, maybe back in like 2017, 2018, was like going to college campuses and doing what that generation of conservatives does, which is say, are trans people <laughs> like trans women aren't women? Dare to challenge me. Yeah, change my mind. And then they'd like confront campus liberals and make them look like idiots and own them. That's the word, own them. Mm -hmm. um, and so Stephen developed a big following. And it turns out, uh, word leaked out via Stephen, I think, uh, a couple weeks ago, that The Daily Wire, which is Ben Shapiro's media company, which is huge and, and really only started back in 2018 as well, which is crazy to think about because it's so big at this point. They offered him 
How much money, Tina? $50 million over four years to join the Daily Wire, which is like mid-career NFL money, like an insane amount of money. And he turned it down and then went to the internet and said what? He goes online and basically complains that some unnamed media company, part of quote-unquote big conservative, has been offering him slave wages and say like, oh, if you want to join us, then we're going to have to censor you and muzzle you and... Oh, stop Stop this rising trend. Join my company. Join the Mug Club, which is the name of his fan base. A little bit of background for why Steven Crowder is saying all this stuff is because he used to work at this company called The Blaze, and he had his own subscription-only service called Mug Club. And there he allegedly had about 300,000 subscribers who were paying $99 a year to watch his stuff and watch other things on The Blaze which is uh, Glenn Beck's old media company and still live and kicking. He recently left The Blaze to start his own thing, and he wasn't able to take his subscriber list with him. Like, he sent out a huge call to action on his Twitter account in December or something going, hey, sign up here. If you want to be part of New Mug Club, I won't know who you are if you don't give me your email address. And, like, that's what internet startups and media startups do need, right? Like, you and I know this really, really well. Yeah, yeah, we do. Subscribers are key, and the thing is, is that, like, $50 million, like, that was the base offer of what the Daily Wire offered him, but the implication that the Wire was censoring him in some way, or trying to take over the means of his value was, like, so offensive to the Daily Wire even if they weren't mentioned my name, there was just enough that Crowder said that made everyone realize, hey, this is the Daily Wire. Uh, that w- The Wire came out and Jeremy Boring, the CEO, puts out this hour-long video where he walks through the entire contract clause by clause and explains to everyone who's listening, look, this is a $50 million contract that we offered him as an opening offer. We could have gone up to further up. One of the numbers thrown around later was maybe $100 million for a four-year contract. And of course, you would have to bear some of the costs. And of course, if YouTube or someone deplatformed him or demonetized his work, we would be losing money on that too. And so the compensation he would receive would go down as well because that's just business. And here's where it gets particularly gross and right-wing. In response, Crowder releases an audio recording that he made of a phone call between him and the CEO of The Daily Wire chops it up, puts this one clip out where the CEO makes some sort of crack about being a wage slave at the beginning of your career, which everyone is, and turns that around and says, look at the Daily Wire trying to take advantage of young content creators, and now you should join my network instead of the Daily Wire, which is here to exploit you. And then it just turned into a giant like internet fight between the Daily Wire personalities and Crowder and The Wire is calling him a communist because they're like, you believe that you should be paid the same amount of money for producing the least work. And Crowder going, you guys are ideologically impure because you're trying to contort yourself to suit the needs of big tech and censoring yourself in order to to stay on their platforms. How dare you try to subject me to those standards by which you make money? And they're like, but yeah, that's kind of the point. We're driving them towards subscribing to The Daily Wire where we can be more open about our content. But someone made the point to me recently that the reason that Crowder could make these kind of claims in the first place and pull that kind of money is because so many people listen to Steven Crowder. 
I believe one of the the night of the 2020 presidential election, there were 16 million people on his live stream. Wow. More than people watching like broadcast networks. Yeah. Well, so just to level set for a second, the Daily Wire was in negotiations with him Mm -hmm. and, you know, made him an opening offer of $50 million, which is crazy. And it really exposes an interesting catch-22 for all these people on the right. And in fact, maybe it's not even a catch-22. It just exposes a kind of bad faith argument on a lot of people's part. So Mm -hmm. if Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz go out and attack big tech and say, we need to regulate big tech, they're turning around and putting that in a video and sending it out on email so they can fundraise off of their attack on big tech using big tech. And so Ben Shapiro knows this. He knows that there are terms of service that they have to abide by to get eyeballs, <laughs> to get subscribers, to get followers, to get people to watch their content, and to make shitloads of money. And all of these people want to make shitloads of money. And like it just feels like you can only attack big tech so much while you're also depending on them for revenue. I mean, like you wrote in your piece, you called it how conservative media kind of operates with this DIY rebelliousness, right? Like the all of the stars on the right kind of came up, a lot of them rather, on the young right, mm-hmm. came up via YouTube, by going to college campuses, by owning the libs, by triggering people, you know, doing mm-hmm. the Milo thing on campuses. The reason they are famous is because of big tech. The reason they are making money is because of big tech. And then you can't turn around and claim big tech is evil while you're also pocketing their money. And I thought that was just like a really interesting thread running through your article. Mm. Yeah, it also does explain this growing trend. I've kind of hit at it in other articles, but at some point I'd love to go really deep into this, of conservative and right-leaning investors trying to create their own parallel tech stack infrastructure. So their own platforms, their own streaming services, all the way down to the servers they use. But no one's there. That's the point. Like Parler, et cetera, like True Social. Mm -hmm. The bodies aren't there. The eyeballs aren't there. Like the reason... Steven Crowder is a success on YouTube is because, yes, he has like a dedicated audience that's following him. And then he's incrementally gathering eyeballs based on algorithms showing his content to more people and more people and more people. Like it's endless possibility if you're a content Mm -hmm. creator on Google, YouTube, Meta, you know, TikTok, whatever. But that doesn't exist on these like right wing platforms that have a limit to how many people are going to join and sign up because they're just limited to like the hardo right wingers that are just brainwashed that big tech is evil. I mean, there is that for sure. The way that right-wing media probably could exist in this alternate universe does perversely exist on their ability to live on these main platforms and then say, hey, come over to this platform over here where you can't be canceled. If you took a video on Rumble yelling about vaccines or conspiracy theories or whatever, and then you go on Twitter and say, come click this rumble link so you can see the truth. Like that's pretty appealing. You click through it, you kind of go through it. It's Mm -hmm. another step. And I think the SART savvy right wing online media personality and media company right now is realizing that they can use Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, whatever as a funnel. And it's turned into this really weird marketing ploy that kind of lets them have it both ways. It's still really, really awkward though. Yeah. The last thing I want to just ask you about is you wrote in August a larger piece about the Daily Wire's growing empire. You wrote that, again, this is August, 
They had over 200 employees. Um, they're making 250 pieces of unique content every day, making $180 million in revenue with a mix of advertising and subs. And then they also have their subscription services, Daily Wire Plus, which when you wrote this, they had like 940,000 subscribers paying anywhere between $8 and $14 a month. And they, they told you at the time, we're, we're going to cross that 100 million mark in the next couple of months. I mean, mm-hmm. if they do that, like they're making so much money. Have they crossed a million subscribers at the Daily Wire? Because I mean, that that would just, mm-hmm. I just, they're, they're just continuing to grow like a, a huge media rocket ship. And just to bring it full circle in this conversation, mm-hmm. I mean, like they're just not talked about in mainstream media, <laughs> I think the way they deserve to be. They're making movies. They're making, they're making like movies. movies for like release on Netflix and stuff. Yeah, they're making movies. They're making animated television shows. They've got like their own version of Twitch, basically. They have, they're like, kind of crawling a little bit into the Gen Z YouTube reacts Mr. Beast space. They've got like designs on empire building and Crowder I think was a smart play for them. Like he's a right-wing conservative media personality with a massive following. They could have monetized that. Everyone could have been happy. The problem is he personally didn't want to I guess ruin his own anti-big tech street cred in a Mm -hmm. way that someone could have called out eventually. At the same time, he sort of did this to himself. Yeah, I just don't see the kind of followers that are like watching Steven Crowder, you know, a lot of like college Republican types, like young millennial bros. Those aren't the kind of people who are going to nitpick about the fact that like they're watching his video on YouTube and therefore abiding by certain terms of service and like you're a sellout. Mm-hmm. Because you're working for the Daily Wire. Like, that's a very, very, very online inside baseball conversation that I just feel like his fan base kind of doesn't care about. So it does feel like he did it to himself. I mean, that's a lot of money to leave on the table. I don't know who else out there is going to pay him that much money. So good luck with your sub stack, sir. Godspeed, Stephen. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tina. Appreciate no it. When we come back, Dylan Byers talks to Ben Landy about whether Gail King would ever come to CNN. Welcome back to the powers that be. I'm Ben Landy, and we are very excited to have Dylan Byers. How are you, man? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? I'm good. You reported earlier this week that Chris Licht, the CEO of CNN, has been pitching his old colleague, Gail King, on bringing her over to CNN, having her host her own interview series at the network. I assume that they've got a rapport dating back to when Licht brought her into CBS Mornings a decade ago. But what's your sense of his thinking in reaching back out to her now. Well, look, I mean, I think that Chris Licht has been throwing a lot of ideas against the wall ever since he got there, right? Look, if if you're in the world of television news right now and you're trying to be a news network that plays it down the middle, the available talent pool is pretty slim, right? You have to find people who still want to be in the world of, of television, people who are at least uh, ostensibly palatable to pretty broad audience. And then ideally somebody who actually has some name recognition, and certainly Gail King is that. Now, I would caution here, as many media executives have pointed out to me in the wake of my report, Gail King is a star in her own right for sure. She is certainly somebody who keeps company with the sort of biggest names in in business and media, and she's she's you know sort of a member of the Sun Valley set. 
she actually does not demonstrably move the ratings needle. She does uh, in terms of her CBS morning show that that show has always been in third place. However, she has a great track record when it comes to these sort of big headline driving interviews. Uh, most notably, her interview with R. Kelly comes to mind. She is somebody who would be very comfortable interviewing presidents, the Pope, as she would with like, pick or choose your celebrity. So there's a lot here in trying to bring her over that sort of makes sense from where Chris Licht is sitting. I think what's working against him is basically everything, which is one, CNN has been a metamorphosizing and very chaotic network uh, ever since he took over. He has not gotten particularly good press. CNN's ratings are down, their revenues are down. It is not clear to me that Gail King would want to hitch her star to that wagon when she's sort of like already living, you know, living the dream life. She's got CBS mornings, but on top of that, she's can sort of like go where she wants, do what she wants. She's got as much money as she probably needs. And then I think even, you know, from in terms of the sort of financial calculus for Warner Brothers Discovery, could they afford to bring her over? Sure, CNN is not, you know, I mean, it's it's on the grand scheme of the WBD balance sheet. It's probably not that much. But this is a company that is trying to save money that is cutting costs. And of course, CNN is a company that has just laid off hundreds of people. Do you really want to invest millions of dollars in bringing someone over who's going to do a show once a week? I don't know how you sell that to the CNN staff who's just had to say goodbye to some of their colleagues. Whatever the case, the big picture here is that it is indicative of the fact that almost a year into his tenure, we are still very much in the experimentation stage. We've got a morning show that has yet to find its footing and that might even be suffering from some sort of off-air drama between some of the co-hosts. We've got a daytime lineup that is being revamped, but that even that has yet to roll out. And then we have a primetime lineup that is still effectively vacant, right? I mean, there, there are hosts in those chairs, of course, but there is no sort of grand new strategy for what to do. There's certainly no marquee star beyond just extending Anderson Cooper into a second hour. And so I think what is baffling to a lot of people, both at CNN and in the industry, is like, okay, you've had this job for nine months. You've known you were going to have this job for well over a year. When is this strategy that you keep referring to, when, when are we going to actually hear what that strategy is and when are you going to put it into place? And, and it seems like David Zaslav has given him a significant amount of runway, but can only go for so long with ratings going down and, you know, and, and no clear vision offered before some more serious questions get raised. And I don't know if bringing over Gail King really provides a permanent solution to that problem. Yeah, well, you perfectly encapsulated all of the issues here. And there are so many, like, I, I feel pity for the people who have to actually solve this problem for CNN. I mean, to your point, you know, Gail King, she's an incredible interviewer. Does she move the needle for ratings? Maybe she does a little bit. But again, to your point, Licht's other mandate at CNN is to cut costs. It's not obvious that there's a programming masterstroke that solves all of CNN's problems. And in the meantime, he's being told from up above, from David Zaslav, that Warner Brothers Discovery has all this debt they need to clear off the balance sheet. They want to lower costs. And so it does feel a little bit like whether this is deck chairs being moved around the Titanic or sort of window dressing, Licht's going out and trying to solve his problems with a flashy new hire is just obviously at cross currents with his real job at CNN right now. Yeah, and you've actually hit upon the the real thing here. It's not whether or not he gets a Gail King. 
the issue here is that he's trying to solve for the wrong problem, right? We talk about this a lot when we talk about the media industry at large. It doesn't really matter if you are a television network historically, if you are a newspaper historically, if you are a digital site. The entire nature of the business is changing, and it's not programming moves are not the thing that is going to save your business. You need to turn the entire business into something that, like like the New York Times versus the Washington Post, as we've talked about, right? Do people come to you for one breaking news thing once every six weeks or 12 weeks? Do they come to you for maybe one interview show once a week? Or do they do they sort of live with you? Do they sort of, you know, live on your website? Are, are you the first thing they go to if they do turn on the television? Have you created a sort of multifaceted, multi-platform news plus lifestyle engine that is sort of how people define themselves and how people sort of understand the world with news and then even beyond news? Who you put in the chair, whether you have that person standing or sitting in the chair, is not going to solve the problem. Maybe it moves you from 350 or 450,000 viewers back up to 600 or 700,000 viewers in a declining linear trajectory with with the ad market that we're in like none of that is really going to solve your problem long term. And so look, I get it. it'd be nicer to have Gail King than to not have Gail King, but there are bigger problems for CNN. Now I think just going back to the larger Warner Brothers Discovery picture, maybe CNN is in a place where because it's just a small, small part of this overall entertainment business that it can afford to not do a billion in revenue. Maybe it can afford to do 800 million in revenue or something like that. And maybe that ultimately doesn't matter to David Zaslav so long as he has this news piece that he can hang as a shingle on a streaming service someday. Nevertheless, I think for the 4,000 some people who are working at CNN who have been used to thinking about CNN as its own company with its own strategy, competitive with the likes of not just NBC and the broadcast networks, but also competitive with the likes of the New York Times and various digital outlets, I think they are looking for something more. And I think that the psychology of that place still continues to think about itself as a standalone business, even if it's been absorbed into this much larger Hollywood company. I mean, to play devil's advocate for a moment, I, I can sort of understand why you would want someone like Gail King. I mean, there there are opportunities, diminishing opportunities, but they are there to create appointment television moments. And I'm, I'm thinking about Oprah's interview with the Sussexes, which was on CBS. That was something that a lot of people watched live or that they found on streaming. But there's only so many of those opportunities out there. And in fact, even when they do break through into the culture, it's just as often that they are finding the second life on social media as video clips or memes. Totally. It does feel like this moment is kind of passing where you're going to get a lot of people to sign up for cable or to hold on to their cable subscription for longer just for that occasional interview. As you said, every three weeks or six weeks that you have like a true AAA talent like the Sussexes, like Biden or Putin. Right. It really does feel like we are in thinking. Gail King is one strategy that Chris Licht has. Another one was a sort of uh, late night style, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert type. That whole model of the appointment viewing interview show is from a time when people were actually like had no other way to sort of gain access to 
you know, a Kim Kardashian or a Will Smith or a Lady Gaga. And it was like, oh, well, she's going to be on TV tonight. So we're going to go there. We're going to see her. It's like, no, that's not the world we live in. You can get to these people any way, anywhere you want. Often directly, they're coming to you directly with their own videos and their own remarks and whatnot. And if they do go on TV in a sort of promotional way and say something, yes, like to your point, you will get that on social media. I mean, I remember when David Letterman struck out and did his Netflix deal with the, uh, you know, he's going to interview all these famous people and he got the big people. He got Obama. Um, he got the Kim Kardashian, you know, he got Billie Eilish, right? I mean, these are some of the biggest names in the culture and uh, it's a great show, but it's like, it's not as though that moves the needle because those interview shows don't have the exclusive access anymore that they used to. Right. I mean, there's so many different ways to get it out there. And so, yeah, I just think to your point, it, it's not, that is not the business anymore. Yeah, that's all totally true, of course. And, and also going back to what you were saying earlier, having a comedian like Jon Stewart, like Stephen Colbert, I mean, that's going to be horribly expensive too. And again, CNN is a company that over time probably needs to get smaller and cheaper to be competitive so long as it remains tucked within this Warner Brothers Discovery portfolio that needs to cut costs. But Dylan, uh, thanks as always for stopping by, man. Always enjoy talking to you. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.